From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. M. Jackson is a geographer, glaciologist, and science communicator exploring the intersections of societal transformation, glaciology, and climate change. Thank you so much, M, for being on the Oregon Grapevine. Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start at kind of the beginning of this conversation with how did you find glaciers or how did they find you? How did that come about to be part of your life? You know what? I love that you asked that because I didn't find glaciers. I really think that glaciers found me. I worked for a long time up in Alaska, and I was going to be a firefighter and an EMT and do all kinds of search and rescue. That was my career track, and I was funding myself by working as a backcountry guide. And I used to work on all of these glaciers, and I had all of these questions. But what was really critical when I look back on that time period This is my late teens, early 20s. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I had grown up really rurally. I had never met another scientist, let alone a lady scientist. And science wasn't on my radar. So I had all these questions. You know, I'd go out and guide and people would ask me like, what's going on with this glacier? I had no idea. It never occurred to me that I would ever be able to answer those questions. I tended to ask people questions. And one time I was out with a bunch of National Geographic birders. Birders. Sorry, folks. Birders are nerds. And these people were the biggest bird nerds of all. And I, of course, then hit them with all of my glacier questions, of which they were kind. They did not answer a single glacier question. But one person in particular, what he told me is, hey, these are great questions. Why don't you answer them? And I know that seems like a simple question, sorry, a simple statement, but no one had ever said that to me before. And it hit a light bulb, maybe I could. And you know what, it would have stopped right there, but these people went back to DC, they went back to the geographic headquarters, and what do you know, an email pops in from this guy. Hey, did you answer this question? I was like, wait, someone's holding me accountable to my question? And that's what started it for me. I asked all these questions, I didn't know where to go, and I became the product of pretty incredible mentorship from a guy named Ford Cochran at the National Geographic. He helped me get into schools, do my, uh, my, my master's degree, my first Fulbright, into my doctorate degree. He helped me every time I had questions and wanted to find answers. Have you talked to this person? Have you looked at this? Have you applied for this funding, this grant? Every time I ran out of money, he was like, I've got a job for you. Two weeks of work in this place. I wouldn't have the career I have today, both without a burning desire to answer questions about ICE and then really incredible mentorship. As an aside, did you ever hear from the person who wrote you the email and asked you if you'd ever, if you'd found the answer to your question? This was him. He followed up. I, he gave me, Fort Cochran gave me such an incredible example of what follow through mentorship is, where He would listen, answer questions, but more importantly, ask questions, show different opportunities, that this is the model I do today and all the mentorship that I do. I just really believe in this. 
we, as kind of the general public here, where we're, we're hearing all kinds of climate change conversations, but certainly glaciers are often the example of, of a problem or something that we need to be paying attention to, and it can be kind of depressing and kind of overwhelming. So I'd like to talk a little bit about you to talk about glacier retreat and the implications and where that's going, and is it all depressing or where's the bright side of it? So two parts to that question. What's happening with our world's ice? Well, there is a lot of depressing things in there, Barbara. Our, our world's ice is melting, and while it is the nature of glaciers to melt, to get smaller, to lose some of their mass, the rate that we see today, we have never experienced in recorded human history. That's pretty shocking. What that means in real life is that I go back to glaciers in Alaska, in Iceland, in the Cascades that I have known my whole life. And I have to go back with printed photos because my eyes can't conceptualize how much loss has occurred. When a glacier, a glacier named Breathemerga yogolt in Iceland, Iceland's third largest glacier, it has lost miles of its physical body in the last 10 years. That's hard for the brain to wrap around that kind of loss. When something transforms, it goes from a physical thing like ice and then it liquefies and it joins into our world's oceans. That's hard. And I think a lot about that because it gets me. It makes me sad. It really does. There's no way to dress that up. But being sad is not a static state. I am not sad and then therefore always sad. A glacier isn't melting and therefore always going to be in a state of exceptional loss. Anyone who thinks that has never read a book, doesn't know there's always another chapter, doesn't know that we can be really down and then get ourselves back up. One of the things I love about studying glaciers is looking back into our histories. We know there are times when there's immense ice on this planet. When our planet is colder, it's drier. So, so much of our hydro system, our world's planetary water budget gets stuck up in the ice and then our oceans are much lower. I think during our last ice age, they were like 412 feet lower than they are today. That's how we had, say, the Bering Land Bridge. It's not because a bridge was built between Alaska and Siberia. It's just because the Bering Sea was, well, wasn't where it is today. That was all available land for people and animals to walk across. But today, everything's melting. So our planet is getting warmer and wetter. So we see our seas rising. We see our, our weather systems getting exacerbated and stronger. More rain, more drought, bigger wind events, all these kind of things. What I love, though, is that we know the science of glaciers. We know what we need to do to have healthy planet and healthy glacier systems. We need cold temperatures, lots of snow, and time, which means we need to work together to get our planetary temperatures down. And in response to that, our glaciers have the ability to grow back. I think a lot about that because most of my life and most of my career is all about arguing that glaciers matter, we're all connected to this, and my God, we should do something. I'm never going to see the results of the work I do. But that doesn't make my work any less important. Maybe my son will see my results, but likely it's going to be those next generations after my son that are going to see that work. So I think about that. There's quite a bit of hope. There's quite a bit of amazing science. There's quite a bit of known pathways forward. The work we do, though, is right now getting our momentum into those directions. 
part of your hopeful journey, I'm imagining, are the books that you've written. Mm-hmm. You've written at least a couple. So if you yeah. talk a little about your, your writing life and how that works. I think if I could do anything in my life, it would be just writing books. The first book I wrote was a memoir. And it really was the story of how I became a scientist and started thinking like a scientist. Because as I was studying glaciers at the same time I started studying science and ice, my parents passed away from terminal cancers. And so I started to realize during that really difficult period that the language we use for a changing planet is really similar to the language we use for a changing family. And so I wrote this book called While Glaciers Slapped. And I loved writing it, and I really liked the conversations I had with people after it was published. I wrote another book that was all about trying to look at what happens to people, communities, when their local glacier systems melt away. And I did, gosh, about a decade of work in Iceland, and so the book is called The Secret Lives of Glaciers, and it really just unpacks that reciprocal relationship between people and ice and how what this community was doing impacted the ice and what the ice was doing impacted the community it's called the secret lives of glaciers and these are two nonfiction books and i really loved them but i was the visiting writer at the university of montana a couple years ago and i was talking about ah why can't we get more people to get into reading very dry nonfiction science books about glaciers why isn't everybody rushing to the bookshop and picking up these very specific dry books about ice I mean, Barbara, I can't fathom, but, like, why weren't you reading these? Why not? I didn't know. I should. (laughs) (laughs) And so some of the writers there were like, "Uh, maybe think about fiction? Because a lot of people would read an amazing story about people, and then if there's some science tucked in there, they might learn that along the way. People might be more likely to pick that up than they would that really in my mind, amazing, factually based book about ice. I don't know why people don't like textbooks. I love reading them. (laughs) Anyway, and so during the pandemic, I wanted to know a little bit more about living here in Eugene. And I started looking around for some books. And there isn't actually that much fiction, nonfiction about Eugene, about uh, the Three Sisters Wilderness, about this incredible landscape. We are lucky here, Barbara. We live in an incredible landscape. I don't find it fascinating. Uh, nobody, none of my friends ever want to go hiking with me because they just don't need to be narrated about the landscape. <laughs> They're like, um, we just want to go for a hike. Don't tell us about processes. And so I decided that I would write a novel and I would have fun. The pandemic was not fun. So I wanted to have fun at least in one area of my life. And that was writing fiction. So I wrote this book, The Ice Sings Back, and I wrote it about women. Uh, I wanted to write women who were having ordinary traumas, daily lived science experiences, working with the ice up here in the Three Sisters. I wanted to write about women who were angry because I think women are told often about what is socially acceptable to be angry and what that can look like. And I wanted to write about that and put these stories really firmly based in the Eugene Three Sisters landscape. And so I'm hoping that if people pick this book up for the stories, they're also going to learn about this incredible place that we live in. Just say the title one more time and let people know. Yeah, the book is called The Ice Sings Back. It's available. I've got a bunch of signed copies at Tsunami, which has just been an amazing bookstore to support me. But of course, you can find the book wherever books are sold. 
when I was kind of finding a little bit about you before this conversation, I saw that you were part of a project that is a feminist glaciology framework for global environmental change, and it piqued my interest. If you would talk about that and just the connection between feminism and glaciers and your life and science. Yeah, I think a lot about this idea of feminist glaciology is just thinking about a feminist framework for not just glaciology, but a lot of our sciences. When we look into the history of a lot of these sciences, particularly glaciology, shocker, there's not a lot of science coming from women, coming from non-Western white men, from indigenous perspectives, from these rather dominant narratives of what science, what glaciology can look like. And so a feminist approach to that really boils down to, hey, we need not only to have more voices in this science conversation, but we need to genuinely value them and listen. Uh, my approach to glaciology tends to be one where the more the merrier in the room. Uh, I do a lot of work uh, with filmmakers and photographers, and repeatedly I'm told, you know, when I'm out in the field, hey, Em, can you get up on this glacier and stand there all by yourself and we'll wait for some wind to come blast along into your hair? And my ego, Barbara, loves those moments because I know I look amazing. I really do. But that's not what my science looks like. I don't do science all by myself looking amazing. I mean, in my head, I think I look amazing. But my science involves big groups of people. My science involves local communities, people who don't have doctoral degrees, um, people who maybe only know a little bit about the ice on the side. And that's, to me, more voices in there. Glaciers are melting, and they are melting very, very quickly. So doing a lot of discipline patrolling, a lot of fighting about who is and is not included in the conversation, I don't have time for that. Talk a little about communities that live around glaciers or that are dependent upon glaciers or you, and your conversations with those people. How does that work? Do you bring community members into the conversation? Do you go on field trips? What's, what is the interaction? The interaction is long. This is the type of field work that takes years, takes listening, takes conversations. I remember when I was just starting my PhD research and I built out this amazing list of questions, Barbara, and then I went to Iceland and I wanted question number one answered and then number two and number three. And it was a really beautiful moment of learning to realize I was asking the wrong questions, that people were looking at me like I was crazy, and that I needed to really rethink the time I was going to invest in a place. A lot of science can be characterized as parachute science, where People just arrive in somewhere, do science, and then they leave. And then you don't actually know anything about what happened or what they did or who they communicated until a year or two later when it shows up in a peer review article. That's not what I'm interested in doing. But you have to learn. And I had to learn. This stuff takes time. For me to do the science I did in Iceland, it took about a decade. It took a really long time of going on walks with local people doing a lot of dishes with people who said they don't actually interact with glaciers even though they and I are looking out their kitchen window at the same ice that's disappearing and their view is changing. It's learning to trust people and more importantly having them trust you. Um, that's the type of work that this, this builds on. And what that work shows us is the nuance of living with climate change. 
We often have a value-based conversation for climate change. Climate change is bad. Climate change is good. And people can't find themselves in that black and white setup. I remember a conversation I had with a woman in the American South who told me, you know, she was an environmentalist. She was absolutely on board with everything. But she didn't do any climate change advocacy because her garden came in earlier. She had new birds and she loved them, right? She was perceiving a positive thing with some aspects of climate change. And that's as much a part of this conversation as all those other bad things. In Iceland, and I really chronicled this in The Secret Lives of Glaciers, I loved writing that book, people had all these different impacts. Some people, as the ice was melting, they perceived a sense of identity changing, who they were as a people, where they were going, as the ice that made them, in a way, Icelandic. What happens to them? Other people, you know, they had lived in this landscape for generations, and the ice had moved forward, it had gotten smaller, it had destroyed their, their roads, their houses, their bridges as it had flooded, as it had gone forward or backwards and all these things. They'd lived with this constantly changing environmental phenomenon. So they told me it was the very best thing that the ice was getting smaller because they felt safe. Other people, they told me that as the ice was melting, it was melting money because tourists from all over the world were pouring in here for the first time ever. And they were paying money to walk on the ice, to stay in a hotel in front of the ice, to listen to the ice, to boat on the ice, to kayak on the ice, to hike on the ice, do all the things. And these people were opening up restaurants and guide businesses and making money for the first time. They associated glacier loss as a double thumbs up, bank accounts are full kind of experience. But if you talk to like fishermen and people who run like cruise ships, they said this is the worst thing. Barbara, if you imagine a sponge in your hand and you press that sponge down and you take your hand away, that sponge, it'll spring back up, right? So for a lot of places that have glaciers, that glacier ice is pressing the physical Earth's crust down. And when that ice gets smaller, the crust, the Earth's surface will spring back up. So if you're a coastal area like the south coast of Iceland and the ice disappears, the land actually rises faster than the oceans rise. It's springing back up. It makes fishing harbors too shallow. Boats can't come in and out. I mean, what do you do when you're a fishing economy and you can't get boats in and out? You look at that glacier and you say this is a bad thing, right? So your question, how do people experience glacier loss? All kinds of ways. It's a really nuanced conversation that over time and space and place, they have all these different experiences, which is you take the word glacier out and you take the word forest in. You say river or ocean or pond. If we're going to have real conversations about climate change, we have to really incorporate all these different experiences that can be perceived in all these different values. These, in this one moment, it might be very good for an individual but not for another individual. It might be very terrible for a group of people. We have to have those complex conversations that are really hard to have. In your experience, are those conversations taking place? And if they are, are there some kind of positive collaborative outcomes? I think about here and conversations about fire because that conversation is moving. It's changing. It's gaining complexity. We're starting to have conversations that say, yes, what happens in the Arctic is actually affecting us here in Eugene because it's changing the nature of our fire season. We're able to start connecting out those things. And I think that's a first step. I remember a decade ago, 
I'd want to have a conversation about climate change and then we're still stuck on whether or not we should recycle. To me, the conversation is changing. Is it all the, all the way down to where I want it to be? No, but no one made me in charge yet, yet. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to a comment that you made and, and is kind of a recurring theme about women in science and about the fact that it, it's a different way of looking at it and it's, it, there aren't as many women out there doing the work. Is that changing? And what are some of the underlying reasons perhaps why it's harder? I think that when I look ahead at the people I needed for as role models, there weren't as many women out in the field as role models for me when I was younger. And that had an impact on me, especially when I did a lot of expeditionary science. I thought that I had to perform masculinity. I thought that I had to be like a lot of my male colleagues and wear the 100-pound pack and have all the gear hanging off me, very visible, very epic in the photos. Uh, but I also thought it was totally fine that I was the only woman on those expeditions. And that somehow was okay. The farther along I've gotten in my career, I've learned there's a lot of networking. There's a lot of less visible women out there in the field. And then when I look behind me, there's a lot more women who are moving up through science. And so that, to me, is pretty positive. We lose a lot of women in science, though, especially when they get to, say, hypothetically my age, and they hypothetically start having families. I look at my, my infant, and I think about how the heck do I go out into the field and do science when my son's all about putting rocks in his mouth and falling into crevasses and trying to lick a glacier? This isn't the safest thing, but I still need to go out there. So that means I need to go out there with him and someone who can help me watch him, somebody who can help me do all of the things I need to do and keep my family safe. And if anyone has any idea on where those grants come from and those funds come from and that reward system and science come from, let me know because it's not there yet. So you see a lot of women having to make a choice. Do I leave my son and go out to these places? Barbara, getting down to South Georgia Island, getting to Antarctica, it's expensive. It's a long grant process. It takes many, many days to get there. So when you do that, you're not there just for a couple days. My science takes months. So... Am I going to miss Finnegan's third word? Am I not going to see him learn to run or do all of these things? These are, these are choices that I don't think just women have to make. These are choices parents make, and they're hard ones. Are, is there, are there anecdotes that you would like to share? Is there a, something about glaciers that you really want to make sure we talk about here today? Something that I, I don't know to ask you. This is where I want to go. I want to make sure we touch on that. I think something that's really important about ice to me is that it changes the way I think about our planet. A lot of people, especially young people that I work with, get really disenchanted with the climate change movement and they get really disenchanted with how slow change is. Because we tweet and we look at social media and we get a headline about something horrifying and then that disappears, that story's gone in a day or two. I go out and I work with ice and I see things that are telling us about human history. We can pull ice cores that are over a million years old. We can look at ice and hear snow that has fallen hundreds of years ago melting out in my hand. It changes how I understand time 
we have pretty amazing ice all over this planet. And I think it's worth people spending some time. If you want to get to know a glacier, really you should just go sit in front of one and turn your phone off and just be with it for a while. We need those moments that ask our perspectives and how we live our lives to shift just a little bit. That's one of the things I'm grateful for about my work with ICE. Thank you so much, M. Jackson, for coming in and being on the grapevine and just talking about the work you do and, and your books and your insights. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live.